Well, this Sunday and next Sunday, we want to turn our thoughts uh, toward the greatest event in the history of the world, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, as our uh, society drifts further and further away from its biblical roots, Easter has become just another holiday weekend filled with sporting events and social activities. And celebrating the resurrection is rarely considered by many, even those who profess to know Christ. But to those who truly know the Lord Jesus as their personal Savior, the Easter season should be one of the most blessed and special times of the year. And we're going to read a story today from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 19. We all know the story that we are going to look at today. It's the story of Palm Sunday. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as the King and Savior just a few days before He was crucified. And it's always a prayer of mine that we will see this this well-known season with fresh eyes. And what I mean by that is it's easy to go through the motions of, of honoring the Lord Jesus at Christmas and Easter without being refreshed and blessed and challenged, because it's all become so familiar to us. You've heard the Easter story hundreds of times. You've heard the Christmas story hundreds of times. You've heard this story that we're going to talk about today probably hundreds of times. And although it may not be new, it can and it should be fresh. And that's what we always hope and pray, that as we look at these things, that it will be, it will just refresh it in our minds again, and we will be, and we will be renewed and strengthened. It's kind of like eating a, a good grilled steak. You know, you may have eaten them hundreds of times in your life, but you throw it on the grill and it still smells good, and you know it's going to taste good, and, uh, and, and even though it's so incredibly familiar, in fact, because it's familiar, you look forward to the smell and the taste of, of those ribs on the grill or that steak on the grill. And that's what I hope and pray that, that, that this Easter season will be for you. Never, never lose the joy and the wonder of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Keep it fresh in your life. And in our passage today, Luke uh, transports us to the last week in the earthly ministry of Jesus. With his instructions to the disciples to go and find this colt in the village, Jesus seems to be doing exactly what his disciples expect him to do. He's taking charge, he's making a bold statement, he's entering Jerusalem just like the Messiah that they think that he is and that they expect him to be. And so the colt is brought to Jesus, the disciples lay their their, their cloaks, their clothing on its back to make a kind of a makeshift saddle, and Jesus rides this colt into Jerusalem. The crowds in Jerusalem have grown by the thousands, crowding the streets in Jerusalem as travelers and and residents of the city prepare for the feast of the Passover, the most important religious celebration in the history of the Jewish people. Because it is the Passover feast that memorializes God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And they're going to eat this meal of lamb and bitter herbs and other symbolic foods. They're going to eat it later that week. And it's going to remind all those first century Jews that God freed their ancestors from the oppression of Egypt. The prayer of many Jews in, in, in Jesus' day, of course, was that God would free them from the oppression of Rome. 
And so when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the first day of that Passover week, the crowds are looking for somebody to rally around, somebody to carry the banner of freedom and liberation for the Jewish people. But Jesus is not traveling the road to revolution. He is traveling the road to Calvary. And along the way, several very interesting things happen. But before we get to that, let's read our text. I came across a wonderful, fabulous outline on this passage some years ago. I'm going to share with you today. I wish I knew who to attribute it to, but I've seen it so many places, various places on church websites. I don't know who actually wrote this, wrote this outline first off, but I'll share it with you in just a moment. But let's, let's read our text, and we're going to begin in verse 28, Matthew, or Luke 19 and verse 28, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Luke 19:28 And when he had said this this is Jesus speaking he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem he'd been traveling there for a number of days and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany just outside of Jerusalem at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? Of course, somebody walks up and starts to take your, uh, your, young, uh, your young donkey away, which is according to the other gospels what this was, not a colt of a horse, but the colt of a donkey. And they said to him, The Lord has need of him. So they brought him to Jesus. They threw their own clothes on the colt and set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Let me just pause there for just a moment. I think we've mentioned in past years, but just so you know, in Jesus' day, the horse was a sign of war. Horses were only used in battle, in war. Whereas donkeys were used for agricultural purposes. If Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a horse, it would have been a sign of war, a sign of revolution. And the, Romans, uh, the Roman soldiers would have immediately been, been alarmed and, uh, and been, and been uh, sent out to try to stop what they would expect was going to, be going to be going on. But because Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of an animal used for agriculture, then there was not nearly that revolutionary threat. And I don't know if the people in the city, they apparently didn't really get that, because they still thought Jesus was coming to free them from Rome. Verse 37, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. A quote from the Psalms. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And of course, that prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ came to pass in A.D. 70, about 40 years later, when the Romans absolutely leveled the city of Jerusalem. Verse 45, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, not that day, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. As I said, Jesus Christ is not traveling the road to revolution. He is traveling the road to Calvary. And along the way, many interesting things happen. The first one is this. On the road to Calvary, Jesus picks up some admirers. Of course, not even the disciples realize that Jesus is heading toward his death by the end of the week. Every time Jesus mentions that he's going to be mistreated or killed, the disciples protest that he's even speaking about such a thing. And they vow to defend him, and they're going to stay with Jesus regardless of the outcome. As Peter so boldly said, Lord, I'll go with you even unto death, which you know how that played out. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem that Sunday morning, the disciples are joyous and the crowd is energized and these shouts of Hosanna are ringing out as he rides through the crowds. These are the crowds longing for freedom. You see, the residents of Jerusalem, as well as Jews from all over the Mediterranean area, they have arrived for the Passover. They're all longing for freedom. They, they despise the presence of the Romans in their city, the city of David. They, they are irritated that, that Herod the Great, many years before, in fact, when Jesus was a baby, he had, he had built this garrison that, and, and attached it to the north wall of the temple. And that's where all the troops in Jerusalem stayed. They called it Antonio's Fortress. And they were horrified that the Roman soldiers were actually housed in a building that was connected to the temple. Roman troops would parade through the streets of Jerusalem on a regular basis, holding high the banner of Rome. Every time they shopped in the market square, they were buying supplies with Roman coins stamped with the image of Caesar. And Rome's presence and power and dominion was, was, was everywhere, even in the court system, where the governor of Rome administered Roman law, overriding their own high priest and their religious leaders. So as Jesus rides into Jerusalem that Sunday morning, the crowds are singing and shouting. They're following him, but you know what? They're just admirers. They like it that Jesus stands up to their own corrupt political leaders and their re religious figures. They like it that Jesus seems to be a man of the people. He ate with average people and he talked with almost anyone. They've been looking for a hero, and Jesus is now the flavor of the day. And of course, there have been verified re reports that he could heal people and perform miracles and, and command evil spirits uh, to leave those that they, that they possessed. His teaching was amazing. He spoke with knowledge and authority. He was an incredible rabbi. All the more reason to admire Jesus. He, he was a revolutionary in their minds, as well as a teaching mystic. A great combination for them. 
But you know, the problem with admirers then and today is that they see what they want to see in their hero of the day. What the crowd saw in Jesus was the son of Joseph, not the son of God. They saw a rabbi. They saw the son of a carpenter who could really hold a crowd with his, with his preaching. They saw him as a revolutionary, not as a redeemer. They wanted another Maccabee, not a spiritual Messiah. If you're not sure what a Maccabee is, it's in Jewish history. Not too long before this event, just a couple of hundred years before Christ. Uh, there, were some, there was a Jewish family of priests who rose up and, and drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem and out of the temple. And they had about 150 years, the Jews did, of independence. And they named that ruling family the Maccabees. It was a, it was a Hebrew word that meant hammer because they, they kind of hammered the Syrians and had driven them out of, of Jerusalem. People were looking for another Maccabee, not a, not a Messiah. In, in short, you see that they admired Jesus because they thought he was the answer to all of their problems. Many people today, exactly the same way. They know where they want to follow Jesus. They just want to admire Jesus. They think he's a great role model. He's someone to look up to. He's, he's, he's so inspiring. Are they going to go to the cross with him? I don't think so. About 75 years ago, there was a Christian man down in South Georgia named Clarence Jordan. He founded a farm called Koinonia Farms. He, want, he wanted to create a community that he believed would be an authentic expression of the kingdom of God. Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship. That's where he got that word. This was an experiment in agriculture and in the gospel. He had white people and black people working together side by side, tilling fields, harvesting crops, sharing life together. They all lived together on the complex. They ate together. They worked together. It was a very daring thing to do in South Georgia in 1942. No one really shared Clarence Jordan's vision. So Koinonia Farms attracted a lot of trouble. The farm was shot at by passing cars. Signs and buildings got vandalized. The KKK burned crosses near the property. The Koinonia community members would get beat up when they went to town. Merchants refused to, to sell supplies to the farm. They called for boycotts of their products. And eventually a bunch of legal troubles began to mount for this struggling experiment in Christian compassion. Well, Clarence Jordan had a brother, Robert Jordan, who was an attorney, an up-and-coming attorney. Clarence went to his brother, Robert, to help him with his legal problems. But Robert had political ambitions. He would later serve as a Georgia state, state senator and as a justice in the Georgia State Supreme Court. And in a book about this whole event, a fellow named David Augsburger wrote this book called Dissident Discipleship. And he sort of captures the scene as these two brothers talk, Clarence with Koinonia Farms and his brother Robert the lawyer. Robert has declined to represent him in court. And he says to him, you know, Clarence, I can't, I can't do that. You know my political aspirations. If I represented you, I might lose my job, my house. I might lose everything. Clarence said, well, Bob, we might lose everything too. Yeah, but it's, it's different for you. Clarence said, well, why is it different? I mean, it seems, I, that, that it seems to me, if I, if I recall correctly, that you and I joined the church the same Sunday when we were boys. And I expect when we came forward, the preacher asked me the same question he asked you. 
Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I said, yes. What would you say, Bob? Bob said, well, listen, Clarence, I follow Jesus, but up to a point, just up to a point. Clarence said, could that chance or could that point by any chance be the cross? Bob said, that's right. I'll follow him right to the cross, but not on the cross. I'm not going to get myself crucified over this. Clarence said, then I don't believe you're a disciple. You're just an admirer of Jesus. You're not a disciple of his. I think you ought to go back to that church you belong to and tell them that you're not really a disciple. You're just an admirer. Brothers can be kind of blunt to each other, can't they? Bob said, well, now, Clarence, if everyone who felt like I do did that, we wouldn't have a church, would we? Clarence said, well, my question, brother, is do you actually have a real church? You see, Jesus has many, many admirers. They follow Jesus up to a point. There was a popular book a few years ago titled, Not a Fan. The author, Kyle Eidelman, said Jesus is not interested in admiring fans. He's looking for completely committed followers. You see, admirers see what they want to see in their heroes. If they think Jesus is the answer to all their problems, then they cheer him on. But when they find out that following Jesus might cost them something, then it's over in a hurry. It's no wonder that by the end of the week, many people in this very same crowd who are on Sunday morning, they're, they're singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And five days later, they're in that crowd screaming, Crucify Him, Crucify Him. A lot happened between Sunday and Friday because they were just admirers. Jesus picked up thousands of admirers on his way to the cross. But secondly, on the road to Calvary, Jesus picks up some opposition. In what was an otherwise jubilant scene of singing and shouting and celebration, the Pharisees hear all the commotion. And they're, they're rushing toward all these sounds of laughter and joy. And they kind of size up the, the situation. Jesus' followers are proclaiming him king. Oh no! They're singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so the Pharisees begin to shout at Jesus from the, from the crowd, Rabbi, re rebuke your disciples! Rebuke your disciples! In other words, tell them to shut up. Tell them to stop this nonsense. You're going to upset the Romans. Besides, you're no king anyway. And of course, Jesus' reply there in verse 40 was, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Maybe that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he, when he said in the book of Romans that all creation groans for deliverance from the curse of sin. This, of course, was not the first time that Jesus encountered opposition. He'd been opposed from the very beginning of his ministry. In Nazareth, the synagogue crowd didn't like his interpretation of the prophet Isaiah. When he healed the man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees accused him of being a Sabbath breaker. When he explained the correct understanding of the law of Moses, they, 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 they grumbled against him. When he proclaimed that one day he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, of course, he's speaking about his body. They thought he was talking about Herod's temple. They mocked and they shouted in disapproval. It wasn't the first time Jesus had met opposition, but now the opposition was determined to stop him. As they said in verse 47, the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to get, get rid of him, eliminate him. It wasn't just, you know, make him move to someplace else and change his ministry. 
They're gonna, they're, they wanted to destroy him. Of course, they couldn't that day because all the people were all listening to him. But he had become too popular, too much crowd charisma, too much trouble to be allowed to continue. He had to be stopped even if they had to kill him. And of course, as we've said many, many times, opposition to Jesus is nothing new. This world is no friend to the gospel of grace. And sadly, opposition is not going away. Way back in 2010, seems funny I should say way back in 2010, but that's been 11 years ago. Way back in 2010, Billy Graham wrote an article on heaven that was published in the Washington Post. He plainly said, we don't get to heaven by our own works, but by faith in the sacrifice of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Very true, of course, and totally scriptural. But in the comment section against Billy Graham, now, of course, with the Lord, as of a few years ago, but in the comment section, people wrote, Billy seems to miss that there's no evidence of the reality of heaven or hell, independent of the internally inconsistent ramblings of a 2,000-year-old collection of fiction meaning the Bible. Another comment, it sounds nice, too bad heaven doesn't exist. Another one said, outrageous gibberish from a totally deluded man of the cloth. When you die, Mr. Graham, you will simply cease to exist. No heaven, no hell, just death and nothingness awaits you and everybody else. For once in your life, get real. So it's no surprise that Jesus picks up opposition on the road to Calvary, even as the crowds are, are admiring him. There's always been and always will be those who oppose the work of God, those who reject the love of God, those who ridicule the Son of God. Jesus told his disciples that the world hated him, so he said, don't be surprised if they hate you too. But knowing all of that and knowing what was ahead, Jesus just kept moving toward the cross. Because as you know, John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the world that God loves includes those who currently oppose him. Jesus came to those who opposed him. Jesus came to those who belittled him. Jesus came to those who ridiculed him. That's why he prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. After they have whipped him and beat him within an inch of his life and pounded nails through him and hung him up to, 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 in front of a crowd of people to die. And he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So on the road to Calvary, Jesus picked up some admirers. On the road to Calvary, he picked up some opposition. And then thirdly, on the road to Calvary, Jesus picked up the cross. At this point, the life of Jesus isn't all that different from the lives of other great religious leaders. Some people followed him for the wrong reason. Other people opposed everything he did, even when he was helping them. But there's a twist of the story that's unlike any other story of any other religious leader in the history of the world. In reading the story of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday that we read this morning, don't forget the reason for his coming to Jerusalem in the first place. Jesus did not ride into Jerusalem to hear the crowds shout Hosanna. Nor did he come unaware of the opposition to his ministry. Jesus came to Jerusalem not for the first part of the week, not Palm Sunday, 
Jesus came to Jerusalem as the Lamb of God to die during the Passover, which was just a few days away. On the road to Calvary, not only does Jesus pick up admirers and opponents, but he picks up the cross. Because the road that Jesus traveled led not just to Jerusalem, but through its streets where he was mocked and jeered. And the road that Jesus walked on was a road that didn't end in the city. It continued out the other side through the city gates to a hill called Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. You know, we often use the phrase, we often say Jesus was crucified, implying that somebody did it to him. Or that's certainly true. I mean, the Passover crowd demanded it. Pilate confirmed it and okayed it. The Roman soldiers performed it. They nailed Jesus to the cross. But when we say Jesus was crucified or they crucified Jesus, we kind of miss really the great significance of the week. Because Jesus picked up the cross willingly and sacrificially and obediently. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 and verse 18, he said, I lay down my life and no one takes it from me. I lay it down and I take it back again. In that great passage in John chapter 10, when he was talking about dying, he says in verse 18, nobody's going to take my life away from me. They, they, they can't. I'm going, to, I'm going to lay down my life, and then I'm going to take it back again, talking about his resurrection. And you know, even though in the emotional agony of knowing what was ahead, Jesus sweating great drops of blood there in the Garden of Gethsemane on that Thursday night, Jesus still picked up the cross. Because the road to Jerusalem was not the highway of Hosanna's, the road to Jerusalem was the road to Calvary. Jesus knew it. His disciples didn't. Jesus walked it. He embraced it. His followers ran. And all of that was for our forgiveness and our salvation. It's because Jesus picked up the cross and gave his life that we can live. It's because Jesus picked up the cross that this world was forever changed and sin lost its death grip on humanity. That grand old gospel song at the cross says, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done He groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace, unknown and love beyond degree well might the sun and darkness hide and shut his glories in when christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love i owe here lord i give myself away tis all that i can do at the cross at the cross where i first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Two thousand years ago, Jesus picked up the cross, and he died for you and for me. Have you placed your faith, your trust in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, his burial and his resurrection? If, if you haven't, I plead with you to trust Jesus Christ today. 
Don't trust your church. Don't trust your ceremonies. Don't trust your goodness. Don't trust your works. Trust what Jesus did when He picked up the cross for you. Don't just be a fan. Be a follower. And if you have trusted Jesus' death for you when He picked up the cross, what are you willing to carry for Him? Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that all of these Easter traditions we have and all of the things we often do in our churches have in some ways perhaps numbed us to the reality of what you did on the cross. And Lord, I pray that we will have a, a fresh view again of who you are and what you did and why. We are lost without you. We are headed for hell without you. Without your forgiveness. Without your restoration. We have no hope in this world and no hope in eternity. And Lord, we thank you for all that you did when you picked up the cross for us. May we be willing to carry something for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.